As millions of children and adults participate in the fun of Halloween on the night of October 31st, few will be aware of its ancient Celtic roots in the Samhain festival. In Celtic Ireland about 2,000 years ago, Samhain was the division of the year between the lighter half, known as summer, and the darker half, known as winter. At Samhain, the division between this world and the other world was at its thinnest, allowing spirits to pass through. During this time, the family's ancestors were honored and invited home, while the harmful spirits were warded off. People wore costumes and masks to disguise themselves as harmful spirits and thus avoid harm. Bonfires and food played a large part in the festivities. The bones of slaughtered livestock were cast into a communal fire. Household fires were extinguished and started again from the bonfire. Food was prepared for the living and the dead. Christianity incorporated the honoring of the dead into the Christian calendar with All Saints or All Hallows Day on November 1st, followed by All Souls Day on November the 2nd. The wearing of costumes and masks to ward off harmful spirits survived as Halloween customs. The Irish immigrated to America in great numbers during the 19th century especially around the time of the famine in Ireland during the 1840s. The Irish carried their Halloween traditions to America, where today it's one of the biggest holidays of the year. Now it's time to look beyond the walls of Halloween. Welcome back to Beyond the Walls podcast. My name is Ben James. I am your host. We're taking a little bit of a break from our series on my top 10 conspiracy theories, and we're going to take a look at the history of Halloween. want to say up front, just a little bit of a disclaimer here as we get prepared to enter into this seasonal topic, that we're going to be looking way back into the history of many different cultures, uh, we're going to begin with the Celtic culture over in Ireland in, in particular for this episode especially. And there's going to be a lot of different theories, a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different values and spiritual interpretation of the afterlife, of how the afterlife uh, interacts with us and how the other world can become involved in our world. I am not endorsing any of these theories and actually I'm not even going to be giving you my thoughts, my opinions, my belief on what the relationship between uh, us and the other world or the underworld or however you want to put it, or necessarily giving you my thoughts on the afterlife. I am just giving you as historically accurate facts as I possibly can. When you deal with lore and things of folk 
legend and things that are handed down through generation, one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and becomes myth and becomes legend, and Lord of the Rings is playing in my head right now, so I'm not even going to go there because we all know I have difficulty with that. But there's a lot of things that there are many different theories, many different stories around them, so I'm going to present to you several different stories on a couple different fronts, but also know this, that it's extremely difficult to nail down one scientific, historically accurate account for things that have happened sometimes up to 5,000 years ago. So with that being said, we are going to be looking not only at the history of Halloween that we have in our own time, pop culture-wise, and how it came over and how it became part of what we do here uh, in America, but we're also going to look at the origins of Halloween before it was known as Halloween. As we referred to in the intro, it began as Sawin. Now, I'm trying to really do well with these names of a different language, uh, so please, please, please forgive my um, Eastern Kentucky dialect as I butcher um, what is you know, otherwise a very beautiful and very difficult language, because as I'm sitting here looking at this, it is basically, if I were to just look at this word as to Sawin and try to pronounce it, I would say Sam Hain, which I believe, actually, I'm not a Halloween movie fan as far as the Michael Myers Halloween, but I do believe that it was in the second Halloween that there was a message written, and the message had Sam Hain in it. It had Sawin in there, and the actual actor that was portraying, I believe it was a, a, a counselor in this, in this particular scene, said... Um, you know, something about Sam Haynes. So it just kind of goes to prove that uh, that we uh, here in America can butcher just about any language that we, that we really want to set out to butcher, even our own included. So this is going to be a couple episode series. I feel pretty confident of that. Maybe three, but I'm, I'm leaning towards quite possibly two. But what we're going to do as we do here beyond the walls we we really can't get past the historical context of something if you've followed the show for any time now you know that we view historical events as ripples of a pebble hitting a pond and there are, there are sometimes you can trace back the initial pebble hitting the pond in that particular location and that is the impact point of the historical context but oftentimes there are so many different events that happen that ripple out from that one that you really have to begin by tracing it back. And that's what this episode is going to be. We're not even going to so much get into the particulars of Sawin. We will talk about some of the things that go on there. But really, we're going to look at the area and the historical landscape, if you will, of where the festival, this, this festival of fire, Sawin, on... October 31st, if we want to air quote it there, but the, the transition between summer going into winter. So that's what we're going to be dedicating uh, this episode to. So I'm glad you're with us. I hope you enjoy this. Set back, kick your feet up, not if you're driving, but here we go. Scattered across the rich Meath countryside, there is evidence of extensive human activity dating even to the earliest of times. 
The oldest monuments in the area are to be found at a tomb in a cemetery near the Bend of the Boyne in northeast Meath. Standing on a ridge on the north bank of the river, these passage tombs are estimated to date back to 3200 B.C. Now, within these tombs, there are more than 40 monuments on the site. The passages of these graves consist of a burial chamber. Now, the chamber and the passage are completely covered over by a mound of loose stones, which are held in place by massive slabs laid along their edges. To give you an idea as to the age of these tombs from a historical event perspective, in 3200 BC, here are some of the references as to what was in place at the time, and maybe even more impressively, what was not even yet conceived. In 4000 BC, the wheel is invented and rice farming is developed in China. Around 3400 BC, we see the beginning forms of writing start to appear. The ziggurats towers are built in Mesopotamia around this time period as well. In 3113 BC, you find the first date on the Mayan calendar. In 3100, Egypt's first dynasty is created by joining the upper and the lower kingdoms. In the year 3000 BC, bricks begin to be used widely, and in 2667 BC, the very first pyramids were built. And as one who believes in the Bible, to give you a point of reference from that perspective, it was around 1200 BC that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, the New Grange tomb, the complete area enclosed by this, is about 2.471 acres. I say about, but that seems to be a pretty accurate measurement. In 1963, during an archaeological examination of this site, something fascinating was discovered, which left archaeologists in no doubt about the sophistication of the people who constructed it so long ago. Although the site had been discovered in 1699 and had attracted much speculation, it was at that time thought to be simply and solely a burial chamber. But this find in 1963 by Professor O'Kelly, or Michael J. quote-unquote Brian, as he was called by his mother, O'Kelly, who excavated and restored the megalithic passage tomb at New Grange, and he was there from around the years 1962 to 1975. The discovery that he made cast doubt on the previous theories and opened up a whole new realm of possibility and speculation. Situated above the entrance, he found a one-meter-wide opening which allows the rays of the rising sun to penetrate into the chamber solely at the time of the winter solstice. Undoubtedly, since then, much significance has been given to this feature and a wide range of theories have been put forward to explain it. There's no doubt that it was used as a place of burial. We know that for certain, as the cremated remains of several persons were discovered in the chamber. However, in light of this discovery, it's doubtful if its primary function was that of a grave. I would like for us to take a moment and pause here 
and maybe draw a few parallels with the religious cathedral of our own time. Inside, and perhaps even under, several cathedrals we find the buried remains of bishops, saints, priests, and other senior clerics. But no one would suggest that the primary function of these cathedrals is a place of burial. Instead, the beauty of the cathedral is an expression of the beliefs of a society that built them. In a similar way, I believe that we need to look at Newgrange and view it through the lens that it may be seen as a mausoleum for the dead, but also a temple for the living. O'Kelly suggests that the archaeological finds at Newgrange do not contradict the idea that it acts and did act as a house of the dead, but as well as an abode to the gods worshipped by its builders. In his prevailing theory, the annual visitation of the sun at the winter solstice to the gods who dwelt at Newgrange may indicate that the site was primarily the home of the sun god and that burials were simply a secondary consideration. The tomb must have been a source of awe and wonder from the earliest times, and the arousal of such emotions may have played no small part in the minds of the ones that constructed it. Perhaps the tomb was built as much to commemorate and arouse respect for the gods as to provide resting places for those recently deceased. Another theory put forward is that the chamber acted as an elaborate calendar. As some have pointed out, at the winter solstice, the sun has reached its most southerly rising position on the eastern horizon before it changes direction. This movement, which is not able to be detected by the naked eye, has a moment of change in which the sun's direction marks the shortest day of the year. And then, when the sun begins to move north along the eastern horizon, the days begin to grow longer. And this is a sign and a promise of springtime. The central chamber at Newgrange provides a perfect environment to plot the movement of the sun. Shortly after sunrise on this day, the first beams can be detected on the ground of the chamber. As the sun rises, the beam lengthens to over three meters until it reaches the back of the chamber. When the beam is at its longest, it represents the southernmost position of the sun. The beam then shortens as the sun retreats on the horizon, once again leaving the chamber in total darkness. Now this is a momentous time in the lives of a people to whom the changing of the seasons was a matter of life and death. The detection of a change in the movement, eagerly awaited by sun observers and recognized, would often offer them the assurance that the forces of light were once again coming to the rise, and the cycle of life would continue for yet another year. Five thousand years of time has cloaked the original intentions of the builders in this mystery, but it seems certain that the great mound at Newgrange was, and is, much more than a burial chamber. If you move 40 kilometers to the west, you'll come to a passage grave cemetery at Luffcrew. This is located on the summit of a range of hills known as the Hill of the Hags. 
It's an impressive array of monuments which are clearly associated with the builders of the New Grange complex. Now, it's thought that the passage graves at Lovecrew were built by the same people who built New Grange, although it seems likely that 800 years in time separate them. The most popular and the most likely opinion is that the New Grange and the Lovecrew system were built by a wave of invaders who landed near the Boyne Estuary. These invaders were thought to have come from Brittany across the Irish Sea and represent the movement of the Neolithic or the New Stone Age peoples and their spreading westwards across Europe in the 4th millennium BC. It's been noted at one passage grave in Love Crew that the backstone of the chamber is decorated with abstract motifs showing some similarity to the decorations found at Newgrange. This pattern of motifs is closely associated with the movement of the sun about the time of the spring and the autumn equinoxes. It is suggested that the daily change in the pattern of the sunbeam was great enough to identify separate days as represented by the pattern on the stone. There seems little doubt that this astronomical alignment was the intention of the builders and indicated the presence of a technologically advanced culture at this site. The amount of labor expended in raising the mound over the grave indicates a strong ritual significance for the builders. Here, as at Newgrange, the link between the sun penetrating a complex structure at a significant date and the use of the sites as places for burial demonstrates clearly that these sites were important places in the sacred calendar of the early settlers of this region. Unfortunately, it's impossible to determine the detail of the ceremonies which occurred at both of these sites. But it is evident that the fate of the dead was closely bound up with the cycles of the sun. This would suggest a strong belief in the concept of an afterlife where the sun god held an exalted position. Now, if we move our focus south of the River Boyne from Newgrange, we reach the most famous site of all. 15 kilometers away, on the crest of a low hill, stands the royal site of Tara. The hill rises 150 meters above sea level and commands dramatic views of the Meath Plain to the south and to the west. This aspect was probably an incredibly important factor in the choice of this hill as a ritual and a political focus. Tara is the primary ritual site in Ireland, and it's also the best known. It's gathered to itself a mythology and a legend unparalleled in Irish literature. It was the home of high kings and heroes, and has attained a place in Irish consciousness which embodies the entire concept of being Irish. Tara has been the scene of intense archaeological studies in recent years, where the archaeological evidence produced so far does not contradict the rich association of the traditional thought of the Irish lore and history. The greatest concentration of monuments is on its summit, where there are over 30 visible monuments. The oldest is the so-called 
Mound of the Hostages, and is, in fact, a passage tomb built around 3000 B.C. Some 40 burials, dating from the Bronze Age, which was from 3000 to 1200 B.C., were found in the clay, but the sole burial found inside the mound was that of a teenage boy. Now, the fact that this youth was of a privileged rank can be deduced from the rich variety of grave goods found in the grave. This burial represents the earliest evidence of occupation in this particular area, and the history of the site can be traced in an unbroken line from then to modern times. While, unfortunately, large parts of the structure were destroyed by a group known as the British Israelites in 1899 in their misguided attempt to locate the Ark of the Covenant here at this location, this is still the most important monument on the hill. The central place, according to Tara in Irish literature, proclaims the importance of this place. It's said that the greatness of Tara declined in the 7th century following a curse of a Christian saint on the place itself, but it still holds a symbolic place in the mind of the people up to the present day. Now, this barely scratches the surface of the Meath's Celtic landscape, but we're moving into the Celtic roots of Halloween, and that is Samhain. And no useful study of Samhain would be possible without reference to the other sites in the wider countryside that surrounds the place where Samhain was held, and that is a place called Tlaka. Two hills in the Boyne Valley were associated with Samhain in Celtic Ireland, Tara and Tlaka. Tlaka was the location of the Great Fire Festival, which began on the eve of Samhain. Tara was also associated with Samhain. However, it was secondary to Tlaka in this respect. The entrance passage to the Mound of the Hostages we referenced earlier on the hill of Tara is aligned with the rising sun around Samhain. The Mound of Hostages is 4,500 to 5,000 years old, suggesting that Samhain was celebrated long before the first Celts arrived in Ireland about 2,500 years ago. The festival of Samhain marked the end of the Celtic year and the beginning of the new one, and as such can be seen to be the equivalent of our New Year's Eve. The Celts believed that the night preceded the day instead of the day coming before the night. So the festivities took place on the eve of Samhain. Now there is no doubt that this festival was the singular most important of the four Celtic festivals. Samhain was a crucial time of year, loaded with symbolic significance for the pre-Christian Irish. The celebrations at Tlaka may have had their origins in a fertility rite on the hill, but it gathered to itself other beliefs which all came together at the Great Fire Festival. The apparent decline in the strength of the sun at this time of year was a source of anxiety for early man, and the lighting of winter fires here symbolized man's attempt to assist the sun on its journey across the skies. Fire was believed to be the earthly counterpart of the sun and was considered a powerful 
and appropriate symbol to express man's helplessness in the face of the overwhelming sense of death and the decay of nature as the winter began to set in. It was believed that the sun had descended into the realm of the underworld. It also meant that with its descension into the underworld, that the forces of the underworld were on the rise. The lord of the underworld, freed from the control of the sun, now walked the earth, and with him traveled all those other creatures from the dwelling of the dead. Ghosts, fairies, and a host of other nondescript creatures went with him. The lord of the dead, in Celtic mythology, the one who was loosed on this day of Samhain, can be identified as dawn. And Don, being just like everything else we look at here at Beyond the Walls, his story has a history. Don was the son of Milesius, and the Milesians were a race of mortal men, not believed to be supernatural beings like the Tuatha Dé And again, to properly tell the story of the Lord of the Dead, Don, we need to take more than just a passing glance at the group that ultimately sent him from this mortal existence into the underworld of which he was believed to have ruled. Story of the Danon were passed down through ages and they became legend via the ancient oral tradition of the poets of the time. These myths are so fantastic and so bizarre that no scholar or historian worth their salt would ever entertain them as anything other than pure, absolute fantasy. But, as we're all aware, I am no scholar, and I don't have an academic reputation to be worried about, and my belief is that, even with fantastical stories, there is no smoke without fire somewhere. So who were the Tutha de Dunan? Well, it's translated as the tribe of Danu, and scholars are agreed that Danu was the name of the particular group's goddess. They were a race of godlike people who were gifted with supernatural powers, who invaded over 4,000 years ago. According to an ancient document known as the Annals of the Four Masters, the Danan ruled from 1897 BC until 1700 BC. They were said to have originated from four mythical northern cities, possibly located in modern-day Norway. The Book of Invasions claimed that in a poem that they came to Ireland riding in quote-unquote flying ships and surrounded by dark clouds. They landed on the Iron Mountain where they supposedly brought a darkness over the sun that lasted for three days. There's a great line which illustrates perfectly the bewilderment that the native people had towards these conquerors. And it says, quote, The truth is not known beneath the sky of stars, whether they are of heaven or whether they are of earth. End quote. A later version of the story relegates the flying ships to just being merely sailing ships. And it says that the dark clouds became towering columns of smoke as the ships were set ablaze, which served as a warning to observers that the Danan had no plans on going anywhere anytime soon. 
It's believed that the monks who were recording this story that relegated them to flying ships and just dark clouds of smoke from ships that were set on fire were trying to make sense of something which was well outside of their comfort zone. As far as a physical description of what the Danan looked like, they were very different from the small, dark, native peoples of Ireland at the time, which we don't associate native people of Ireland being small and dark. But this may sound a little bit more familiar to us. The Danan were generally described as tall people with red or blonde hair. They typically had blue and green eyes, and they had a very pale skin. Archaeology has unearthed evidence all around the world of small colonies of red-haired people from the same time period as this. Excavation in the Xinjiang province of China have revealed mummies of red and blonde-haired people living around 4,000 years ago. There's an extremely well-preserved Egyptian mummy of a nobleman around 1400 BC, and it shows that he had blonde hair and Nordic features, as did his wife. And here's a really interesting tidbit. His wife was also Tutankhamun's great-grandmother. So, back to their invasion. In order to win supremacy over Ireland, the Danan fought against the existing ruling tribe. And during this encounter, the Danan High King, Nutha Orgethlam, lost his arm. Now, he survived, but he lost his position because as a king, you could not be seen as anything less as completely whole if you were to bring your people continued success. So in an intriguing turn of events, the king's personal physician replaced his lost limb with a fully functional arm of silver. Later, his physician's son, who was also a physician, caused skin and flesh to grow over the silver arm. Thus, the king was made whole again, and his rightful place of kingship was restored to Nutha following the ousting of his replacement. So here we have another case of strange advanced technology. And could this be the very first ever prosthesis, a robotic arm built over 4,000 years ago? Now when they came, they brought special equipment with them. In particular, it's recorded that they brought four magical talismans of great power with them. These were first the Sword of Light. Now, the sword was said to have been made in a northern city and brought to Ireland by Nutha, and that no one ever escaped from it once it was drawn against them. Other descriptions has it detailed as a glowing white torch. The second thing they brought with them was Luth's spear, also known as the finest famous yew of the wood. It was a very long, fiery lance from which sparks as big as eggs flew when the spear heat takes hold of it. In order to prevent the flames of the tip from consuming the shaft and the warrior holding it, the spearhead was dipped into a cauldron of mysterious sorcerer's liquid. The third talisman was the Dogda's Cauldron, also known as the Cauldron of Plenty. Now, not much is known about this vessel, although it was thought to have the power to bring the dead back to life, and that no one, it is said that no one, would go away from it unsatisfied.
The final talisman that they brought is the Stone of Destiny, or also known as the Coronation Stone. Now, legend has it that the, the cry from this coronation stone confirmed the coronation of the rightful high king of Israel and that its roar could be heard throughout the land. It was broken in half sometime later when it failed to proclaim a certain protege high king. One half was carried away to Scotland, where it eventually ended up in the throne of the British monarchy. Although there is a whisper that the true stone was hidden, possibly beneath a river, where it remains there to this day. Now, the original home of the Danon is more famously known as the Land of the Ever Young. It could be reached only through water by traveling west over the sea or passing through the gateways of the Shi Mounds. Now, pause here for a second. Any Lord of the Rings or either Game of Thrones fans seeing some familiarity here? In these places, the veil between the worlds was considered very, very thin, and therefore, perhaps the most interesting aspect of the magical realm is not the eternal youth, beauty, joy, and the plenty that it represents, but the passage of time that's attributed to it in myths and legends. Here, time seems to stand still. While in the mortal world, time passes in the blink of an eye. There is a story of a young man who spends three blissful years in this magical realm, but when he returns home to find that 300 years have passed. When he falls from his horse and his feet touch Ireland's soil, age catches up with him and he dies immediately as an old man. This idea of an infinite paradise where no one grows old and time has no meaning has parallels with space travel, alternate dimensions, and even sometimes in the mundane. So the question is, were the Danan immortal? Not in the absolute sense of living forever, because they could be killed in battle or by sickness, although compared with the natives of the time, they were clearly long-lived. Again, can you see a correlation here Lord of the Rings fans. The legend states that the Danan were actually defeated in two battles by the Milesians, whom historians and scholars alike agree were probably the first Gaels in Ireland. Not only were the Danan defeated by military might, but also by the cunning of the Milesians. It was agreed that the new invaders and the Danan would each rule half of Ireland. And so it was that the Malaysians chose that half of Ireland which lay above ground, leaving the Danan to retreat below ground. They were led away to their new domain via the Shi Mounds by the god of the sea, who then shielded them from the mortal eyes by what was known as the Cloak of Concealment. As time passed, they became known as the Shi, Ireland's fairy folk. Now that was a very brief backstory into who the Tutha de Dunan were. One of the invasions of the Milesians into Ireland is when Milesia's son set sail in a fleet of around 65 ships. There were seven brothers who embarked on this campaign that were sons of Milesius, and they were all led by Don. On this mission in particular, they were intent on revenge for their kinsman, Ith, who was killed by three of the Danan high kings 
and who shared sovereignty over Ireland. On landing, the Milesians headed for Tara, meeting three queens along the way. It is said that one of the queens foretold great success for their invasion, which pleased the majority of the men, but Dawn, the leader, said gruffly, quote, Not to her do we owe thanks, but to our gods and our power. Now, naturally, displeased at his insult, the queen told him that neither he nor his children would ever have rule of Ireland. At a meeting in Tara, while this was happening, the Danan kings claimed that they could not fight in this particular battle as their armies were not ready. So, in a very strange but chivalrous gesture, one of the kings offered to take his fleet out from the Irish shores. It was thought that if the Danan could prevent the Milesians landing, that their fleet would return home and Ireland would never be troubled by them again. The Danan were delighted at this turn of events of the, of the confidence of this one king and the powers, they were confident in the powers of their magical druids. And as the Milesians drew close, the Danan druids raised a great storm, scattering the enemy ships up and down the length of the land. Many of the Milesian ships were wrecked, killing those on board. And four of the brothers would actually meet their end in this event. One of the brothers met his demise by falling from the top of the ship's mast onto the deck below as the vessel was tossed to and fro on the savage seas. Another was washed overboard and drowned. Another managed to moor the ship he was captaining in a place of relative safety, but he drowned as he was struggling to get the ship into the shore. The biggest blow was the final and the, the last one to come about, and this was the loss of their eldest brother and leader, Don. Now, it's said that Don met his death at Bull Rock, which is an impressive, craggy lump of rock jutting out of a foaming ocean, and today has a lighthouse built on it, interestingly enough. As one of the first and the key Milesians to die in this invasion of Ireland, and being the raid leader and of high status, Don's position soon became elevated to Lord of the Dead. And as time passed, his story was absorbed into fairy lore, and he was thought of as the King of the She. It was said that the Lord made his home at the place of his death. People believe that on stormy nights, he rides across the sky on a white horse and, and says, quote, Dawn is galloping in the clouds tonight, end quote. In later years, it was believed that after their deaths, the dead would continue to walk in the land of the living as shades until they hear the sound of Dawn's horn at Sawin calling them to travel west over the sea to the other world. Now, the Christian interpretation views this slightly differently. They believe that these were the souls of the damned, lingering at Bull Rock before passing into hell itself. According to legend, Dawn, like many other supernatural or paranormal beings, doesn't like mortals messing around on his land. Any of the mortals that he finds farming on the slopes of his hill, he will initially begin by warning the intruders off rather than immediately punishing them. But 
Don is not above kidnapping, apparently. He will take an occasional mortal should the mood take him, and sometimes, as one story goes, he takes talented hurlers to join his team in matches against the other world teams. And I, I love this idea that in the other world, that the she amuse themselves with the same games that, that mortal men play. Some versions of the story claim these to be the sons of Dawn, Lord of the Dead. In fact, they themselves are reported to have said, We ride the horses of Dawn. Although we are alive, we indeed are dead. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Walls podcast. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by just simply searching for Beyond the Walls podcast. You can also email us. And in fact, I want to take a moment and encourage uh, our Irish listeners in particular. However many times I butchered a word or a pronunciation Understand, number one, that I did do a little bit of research behind it and listen to some videos, but there were so many different pronunciations that I could not be certain which one was the proper one. So if you are in Ireland and you are listening, or if you are Irish Heritage and understand that I am horribly mispronouncing a word, please let me know. Email me at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. Even better than just typing it out, Go ahead and record yourself saying the word, pronouncing it properly, and let me know about it because I want to make sure I do this as well as I possibly can. So guys, we will see you next week for part two of our History of Halloween.